You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Hi, everyone. My name is Maddie Quine, and I serve as a Gospels community leader. I will be reading from Genesis 39, verse 1 through 10. Please open your Bibles with me. If you do not have a Bible, there is one under the seat in front of you. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight, and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessings of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of my master, has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that is in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything back from me except you, because you are his wife. Now then, can, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church family. Good to see you. Hope you're doing well. If you are a guest among us here at Northway, we're so glad you're here. My name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here at Northway. And we are continuing in our study in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. We've been working our way through it for a number of weeks slash years, and we are in the final stretch right now. Um, Chapter 39. Now, if you hadn't been with us the last couple of weeks, Really important, the last couple of weeks, what we've seen, starting in the narrative of Joseph and also his brother Judah, is we've seen the lessons about the providence of God. God's providence for us in the midst of sin and suffering to bring about good. Uh, And we've seen it from the angle of the sins that have been committed against us, um, that has brought suffering upon our lives at the hands of others. God can use that for good. And we've seen even our own sins, our self-inflicted wounds and the sins we've committed against others and how God can use that again to bring about his ultimate good in our lives and for his glory. This week is gonna be a little bit different. This week, rather than looking at God's providence over our circumstances, we're gonna see God's presence that goes with us in our circumstances, in our sufferings, the nearness of his presence. And when we talk about God's presence, we're not talking here in chapter 39 about God's omnipresence, that God's all places at all times, all over for all people. That, that's true, but that's not here. We're looking at God's specific covenantal presence, his favorable presence that he has given to only those who are his children how he will meet with his children and walk with his children in the midst of sufferings while his providence is carrying out his intended purpose. He will also meet with us and form us in the midst of those circumstances. You see the context is here about Joseph. We see this in verse one, kind of a recap uh, from chapter 37, two chapters ago. 
Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer in Pharaoh, under Pharaoh. He's the captain of the guard, an Egyptian. He had bought Joseph from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. That was kind of the context that leads us into this story. And it's interesting, in Psalm 105, the Old Testament actually interprets this text for us, tells us the narrative of Joseph. Listen to this from Psalm 105, starting in verse 16. When he, that is God, when God summoned a famine upon the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters, that's chains. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. In other words, what that text is telling us is that God has this ultimate plan in mind for his people and he's gonna use Joseph as a means to that end. And God made a promise to Joseph. When did he, when did he have his word said to Joseph? It's through two dreams. Where he gave him a vision of how the providence of God was gonna play out in the end. But everything that's gonna happen between those dreams and the reality of those dreams of God's promise is going to be a test for Joseph. Will you believe me not only towards that end, but believe me enough that in the meantime, even if suffering comes, that I am with you and that I am for you and that I will bring these things to pass. Will you trust me in the midst of suffering for that ultimate end that may come? The emphatic answer to that question in Joseph's life is chapter 39. And in fact, there are, there's a phrase that you're gonna see repeated four times in this chapter that we are intended to see as the main theme of this chapter. You see it in verse two, the Lord was with Joseph. You see it in verse three, the Lord was with him. And then you see it at the end of the chapter, verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph. And verse 23, the Lord was with him. These bookends right here, they're known as an inclusio. Uh, in ancient Hebrew genre of writing, long before there were chapter headings and theme titles in your ESV Bible, uh, long before we had boldface um, font types and we had all caps to let us know what's important, the way that they would write is they would put the main themes as the bookends. as an inclusio showing that everything that happens in the middle is ultimately about those themes that we've seen as the bookends. Everything you're gonna see in this chapter, there are three main movements in this chapter, three events, series of events that Joseph is gonna walk through and you are meant to see in every one of those three that the Lord was with him. And you're gonna see how God's presence helps, God's covenantal presence helps Joseph, one, serve faithfully in the midst of his successes. Second thing you're gonna see is how God's presence helps him flee from immorality in the midst of his temptations. And then thirdly, we're gonna see how God's presence helps Joseph to endure injustice in the midst of his adversity. And so 
Let's look at each of these three and how the presence of God was with Joseph for these three things to fulfill his greater purposes. You see, the first one, how God's presence helps Joseph serve faithfully in the midst of his successes. You see this in verse two through six. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him an overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. I want you to think about this for just a moment. You have a 17-year-old boy. You remember who you were at 17? You remember what your mindset was? You remember what you were going through? What were the biggest challenges you had at 17? The biggest emotions you felt at that time? All that comes with being a junior, senior in high school. Imagine this 17-year-old boy literally overnight stripped of his family, stripped of his position, stripped of all his comforts, stripped of his, stripped of even when he got to Egypt, all the things he would have to leave behind, his monotheistic worship of God. Now all of a sudden he finds himself enslaved in a polytheistic world of paganism all around him. He's forced to shave his beard that every Hebrew would have to take on the appearance of an Egyptian. He's forced to abandon his language of Hebrew and now turn to Egyptian. All this overnight. For most of us, if we were 17 and went through this kind of trauma, I believe for me, it would be really easy to despair. It'd be real easy to give up. It'd be real easy to be apathetic let alone even antagonistic towards the very one who drafted me into slavery. I would be bitter at God. I would be bitter at life. Like that, that's what I can only imagine in my flesh and the weakness of my flesh as a 17-year-old boy going through what he did. But you don't see this with Joseph in this text. What you see is that this 17-year-old boy not only served faithfully in these circumstances, but he shined in these circumstances. Whatever his duties were in this new master's household as a slave, he did his work with such excellence that his master couldn't help but take note of what kind of blessing was upon his life. And he saw that everything that Joseph did, Joseph succeeded in. He made his house better for this guy being in it. So before long, Joseph is elevated by this guy named Potiphar. And he's elevated to the chief, chief position as steward over all the affairs of the house. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Who's Potiphar for just a moment? Potiphar, as told to us in this text, is essentially the secretary of defense for the entire nation of Egypt. Like he is the one who guards over all the military, guards all 
the interests of, of Egypt for Pharaoh. He is the one who carries out the executions. He's the one who employs the guards. He is over all of this defense here. So he's no doubt in this position as a large household of affairs. And we're told here that Joseph was overseeing it all because that's the kind of trust he had in him. He's helping pay his bills. He's making sure the kids get to school. He's making sure the house is put in order. He's overseeing all the other servants that are in the house. Everything was put in Joseph's charge except for one thing that Potiphar didn't want anybody else touching and that's what's gonna be on the menu for dinner. Uh, at the only, can you imagine being in a place where the only thing you had to worry about every day was what you're just gonna eat for dinner? Everything else was taken care of. That's the kind of trust that this guy had in Joseph. The question is why? Well, certainly you can look at the human side of it. Joseph walked with integrity, faithful in his work, no doubt, but why? What you're meant to see, what the original reader was meant to see, what we're meant to see, is that the real reason is because the Lord was with Joseph. And even though Potiphar was a polytheistic pagan who could give a rip about Joseph's monotheistic God, Yahweh, he could not argue with Yahweh's presence in the life of Joseph. He could not argue that this God was granting him favor and that blessing through Joseph was blessing Potiphar's house for good. And all of this, all of this tells us something really important here, that Joseph so abided in the presence of God that his circumstances did not dictate his servanthood in his suffering, but as God did. Joseph wasn't driven by his circumstances. He didn't allow the hardship to create bitterness in him. I'm not saying it wasn't hard. We know it was hard, but he didn't allow that to dictate his behavior. His work ethic, his servanthood was driven by his God, not his circumstances. And all of this blessing was just as God said what happened with Abraham in Genesis 12. I'm gonna bless those who bless you. I'm gonna see their, their favor increase as your favor is increasing as you walk with me. Paul would later communicate the same idea of our work ethic when he spoke to servants and slaves that were in the first century. He wrote these words in Colossians chapter three. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers. In other words, you're not doing this just to, just to make them like you. No, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And I think the same is true for you and I. No matter the circumstances we are in, we've already learned God's providence is over them. He has specifically placed us where we are. He has allowed things to happen as they've done, not because he's a cruel God, not because he's trying to hold out, but because he has a purpose in it. Acts 17 says he's declared the time of our, our, our habitation, where we live, where we work, where we play. All of that has been ordained by God. You're not there by accident. 99.9% .9 of you have a different job than I do. You're in different arenas. You are out in the marketplace. You're in social and civic circles. You are, you are working and leading and serving in so many different areas and you're not there by accident. God has you there that you might flourish even in the hard circumstances for his glory 
for your good and for the good of those around you. And that that means your work is important. It means how you conduct yourself at your work and in the opportunities of servanthood that you've been given is important and matters eternally. And so our focus in our situation is not to be obsessed with God's providential will of why is this happening? Why, how's everything gonna work out? We don't know that, God's got that. Don't be obsessed with his providential will. Instead, be focused on his perceptive will. What has he revealed to you in scripture about who you are, whose you are, and how you are to serve in this situation and trust that God's gonna use it as he meets with you in the midst of it. Shameless plug, we'll talk about this at the end of the service. We got a faith and work class coming up. I encourage you, jump in this class. It's a great opportunity to learn about the theology of work and how our work matters for all eternity and not to be wasted. That's coming soon. But for Joseph, it was the presence of God, the abiding covenantal presence of God that was with him that enabled him to serve faithfully even in his successes. But understand the successes, one, don't always last for long and rest assured that even as we begin to peak in our successes, it is there that we have a real enemy waiting for us with temptations in those successes. And you see that in the next part of this chapter where you see God's presence is now going to help Joseph um, be able to flee from his uh, temptations of sexual immorality that he's gonna experience here in this next movement. You see this starting at the end of verse six. Moses is careful to note at the very end of verse six, that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife, we never get her name in this chapter, by the way, but Potiphar's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in this house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, When he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. She then laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the very same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. It's interesting in this text where we have 
the strong, aggressive temptation, a false accusation of rape that takes place here. Moses is careful at the beginning of this text to note that Joseph is a good-looking man. He is a looker. That's what we're told right here. And it's interesting because we've seen this language before. Joseph has, been, has heard this about his mom, his grandmother, and his great-grandmother. We see this in Rachel, Rebecca, and Sarah are all told, it's the same Hebrew word, it can be translated beautiful or handsome, beautiful women. He comes from good stock. And it's interesting, in the whole Bible, there's only three men who are told, we're told that they're good looking. Joseph is one of them, David, and David's son, Absalom. All three of these men happen to face very significant sexual temptation. And only one of them does not compromise, Joseph. In addition, verse seven tells us that after some time, literally translated, after these things happened, it was then that she set her desire upon Joseph. After what things happened? What you see is after the success of Joseph, combined with his good looks, that's when she sets her desire upon him. You and I are usually tempted in two very common circumstances. This is where we're gonna face our temptations the most, either in times of adversity or times of prosperity. This seems to be when we're gonna face most of our temptations. Times of adversity, when we've been wounded, we've been hurt, when it just feels like the wheels have fallen out from under us, we've experienced trauma, we've gone through so many hard things, just been an awful week. And it's then that the enemy will show up to whisper us, inciting us towards exit routes, escape routes, where we can medicate our pain and compromise. The other is in times of prosperity, when we've peaked, when we seem like we're at our greatest moments of success, yet it's in those very moments when we tend to let our guard down. We think everything's okay now and we're not as defensible and the enemy knows how to find those cracks in our walls. For Joseph, he is experiencing both at the same time. Incredible adversity with what he's just gone through, yet even in that adversity, prosperity of success and favor in Potiphar's house and the temptation that is presented to him in this moment, it is a sexual one. Now, your temptations, my temptations, they may be different. Um, Maybe in your weakest moments, your greatest moments, the temptation is towards uh, alcohol. Maybe it's towards drug addiction. Maybe it's towards um, comfort. Maybe it's towards eating or shopping or binge watching and a lot of device time and scrolling. Whatever it is to check out, to medicate, to get comfortable, these can be our temptations But for this 17-year-old boy, this is one of the most common ones. Sexual temptation presents itself to him. And he finds himself in a temptation that is very aggressive, very aggressive in this moment. Day after day, this woman's calling out to him. This is like the Proverbs 7 lady of folly that's calling from the streets, enticing you to come out 
and engage with her in this moment. And we've seen it play other ways. This isn't just girls being temptress to the guys. We've seen other incidents of guys uh, with the girls and whatever the situation. In this one, we've got a certain power dynamic plan and this woman is coming after her servant. And how easy could it have been in this moment for Joseph to give in? We're already told, my master doesn't even know what's going on in this house. He trusts me that much. Most of us could use that as an excuse to go, well, then he'll never know. But for Joseph, even after day after day, he doesn't give in. Certainly doesn't give in with these micro enticements that were happening day after day. And then literally, when he's stripped of his clothes, he flees. Daniel runs out of the house naked just to get away from this temptation. And the question is, why? What would set up a 17-year-old boy to not give in in this moment when he so easily could? What sets you up to run the other direction? The answer is, and we see it in this text, it is the presence of God that leads him towards a greater value than his own flesh of love of God and love of neighbor. You see that in verse eight and nine, he describes three types of sins in a sense. I don't wanna sin one against my master. He trusts me. He's put me in this position. He's given everything in my charge. He's, this man's made in the image of God. I'm not gonna violate him. Secondly, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna sin against your marriage. You're his wife. I'm not gonna sin against that. The marriage bed is to be kept sacred. But thirdly, and most importantly, how could I do such a wickedness in this sin against my God. We see in scripture that the the sin we're really committing against is not even just our fellow human beings, it's against our God. David confessed this in Psalm 51. David, who had an affair, who had the, the woman's husband murdered. When he finally gets busted and brings his sin in light, he confesses in Psalm 51, it is against you and you only that I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David recognized, yeah, a lot of people have been hurt in this. I have sinned against them, but ultimately my sin is against you, O God. I have transgressed you and your holy law. Joseph understands this some 500 years before the Mosaic law is even given. Because as Romans 1 says, it's written in our consciences. It's written in our hearts already. And ultimately, it was Joseph's conscious awareness and daily abiding in the presence of God that prepared him for this test that would come and empowered him to not only resist, but to flee. I've only had a couple of times in my life where I've experienced something this explicit right here. One of those, when I was in seminary, I was managing an apartment complex. And from time to time, I would have tenants who would call me, got something wrong in their apartment. I would have to go look at it and and fix it if I could. And so I get a call from this lady who had, I think it was a garbage disposal that wasn't working. So I go down there to go check it out. She opens the door and she's there in her underwear, just staring at me right there in the door. I immediately Joseph that sucker right there. I went, nope. I said, put some clothes on. I'll be back with my wife. Come back. So I went back, got my wife and came over and fixed the garbage disposal. Second time, I'm in New York City. 
This is when I was campus pastor in Flower Mound at the village and our, all of our campus pastors went up to go do a, a visit to our church planning partners. So it was myself, Steve Harden, who's campus pastor here, if you know Steve, and, uh, and Bo Hughes up in Denton. And we go up to New York and we're walking the city all day, long day. And Steve Harden, how many of y'all know Steve Harden? Oh yeah, how can you not? Steve Harden, this good old boy, good old brother. Hey man, you know what we need? We need a foot massage right now. My feet are killing me. I'm like, foot because I know a great place. How do you know a great place in New York City? And we go around this corner. He goes, just around here. It's great. 10 minute little foot massage. We'll be good, brand new, ready to go. Go around the corner. It's this shopping strip, you know, that's on the lower level in New York and all the apartments are above it. And then there's a stairwell going up with no sign, no nothing. I'm like, I've seen this movie before. This is not good. And he goes, follow me. We go up there. He knocks on this random door and I'm standing closest to the door. The door cracks open and it's a woman in her underwear with tables set up in the back. Instantly, I was like, I'm out. And I just walked away. Steve Harden stayed there and evangelized her, tried to share the gospel because that's who Steve is. But I'm like, man, I'm out of here. Very, here's what I want to tell you in this. Very rarely though, are we going to encounter some hyper explicit aggressive opportunity such as those like Joseph's experience right here. Very rarely are we gonna, what we are gonna experience is the small day by day temptations of compromise. It's like David with Bathsheba. David did not wake up one morning and go, you know what I wanna do today? I wanna ruin somebody else's life. I wanna, I wanna ruin my life in such a way that's gonna affect multiple generations to come. What boneheaded thing can I do today to make that happen? It wasn't that way. It was a series of events. At the time when the kings go out to war, David was at home. Check engine light. At the time when David went up on the roof and was navel gazing at the neighbors that were down below him on the terraces, taking baths, check engine light. At the time that David went and called for her and had his servant bring her up, engine's broken, all right? So it's these micro daily compromises that affect us. And in those moments, the scriptures tell us, 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 22, flee youthful passions, Literally, flee youthful lusts and desires. Note in both of those passages, it doesn't say, see how close to temptation you can get without compromising. It says, flee, run. I want you to see the only way you and I can do that is if we are regularly abiding in the presence of the Lord. Paul put it this way when he wrote to the Romans, Romans chapter 13, verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That phrase, make no provision of the flesh, that's a camping term. That's a backpacking term. If you ever go backpacking in your preparation for that trip, you are stuffing your backpack, you are making provision for your flesh. You're thinking about when I'm out on the trail and I'm all alone, what is my appetite gonna be? How am I gonna make sure I'm eating? What are the weather conditions gonna be? How can I make sure that I'm protected? And therefore I am stuffing my pack with provisions for my flesh. 
The Bible says, do that all day long for backpacking, just not with your temptations and sin. How do you do that? How do you not make provision for your flesh? Well, the answer in that verse was by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's by daily abiding in his presence. It's by sitting under the counsel of his word. It's by enjoying that relationship with him where he's not just this abstract theory of God. He is the personal savior who loves you and walks with you and you with him and understanding what the counsel of his will is and understanding the power that he's given you in the Holy Spirit. And that involves wisdom as well to know which temptations that you and I are most prone towards. Every one of us have different vices, different temptations that affects us differently. You got to know yours. I got to know mine. And as Paul said, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. He said, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed unless he falls. That assumes humility. It assumes that there's an awareness of where you're weak. It's playing C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters and going, if I were Satan, how would I get to me? And reverse engineering on that and going, then I don't want to make provision for that. And I'm going to put on the Lord and I'm going to abide in him. And then when we do have those radical moments of temptation that come that we're not even looking for, they just find us. God gives us a promise in the very next verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has seized you except what's common to man. First of all, take a sigh of relief. You're not a freak. Whatever you're experiencing temptation, there are other people on this earth who experience it as well. No temptation has seized you except what's common to man. But here's the promise. God is faithful. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, and that word tempted can be translated tried, can be uh, tempted or, or translated tested. He will also provide an escape so that you can stand up under that temptation. As we walk with God through trial and temptation, which we know in God's providence, he's gonna use as a test in order to form our faith. God tells us he's faithful with us in those temptations, with his presence to then empower us to flee those temptations and take some escape routes that he provides. You know, so many of us think, uh, you know, gosh, there's no way out of this. This is, just, this is just who I am. This is just, I've got to live with this the rest of my life. This is just the temptation that I got. And I have no choice but to give in to it. That is a lie from the pit of hell. We're told in scripture, Paul said to the Romans, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Ask yourself for just a moment, how much power does it take to bring somebody's dead back to life? And yet Paul says that same power of God that raised him is at work in you through the Holy Spirit to give life, not death, to your mortal body. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. God is faithful to empower you, but only if you're walking with him, only if you're sensitive to him, only if you've put on Jesus Christ and are daily abiding, you're going to understand that awareness and that sensitivity of the conviction of the Holy Spirit and it'll provide exit routes. We've been trained this in schools and airplanes our entire life, that there's exit routes everywhere, right? 
here's the hallways, your exit's down here, your exit's above the wing, and here's how you can follow the lights. We're given exit strategies all the time. Why would we not do the same thing in preparing for our temptations? To know our weaknesses, to understand the power and the presence of the Lord and follow his spirit when he gives us opportunities to get out. The next question that we have to wrestle with is Joseph, as he took that escape route in obedience to the Lord because of the Lord's presence with him, how was Joseph rewarded for his obedience? Look what happens in verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way of your ser- that your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison and the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Sound familiar? It's a repeat of what happened at the beginning of the chapter. It's happening again. God's presence utilizing Joseph's faithfulness. But understand, not before he was put in prison. Sometimes, and I would argue most times, following God in righteous obedience is gonna cost you. It opens you up to injustice. But what the reader is meant to see here is that even in injustice, God is with Joseph and helped him to endure that injustice. There are several parallels in the the events of this chapter with what Joseph has already been through in chapter 37. Just listen to a couple of these. In both chapters, Joseph is given the privileged position over a household. One was with Jacob, one was with Potiphar. In both chapters, chapter 37 and 39, Joseph is given an outer garment, one by Jacob, one by Potiphar, used to signify that he is being clothed with honor. But in both chapters, that outer garment is stripped off of him physically, signifying the attempt of others to work against God's plan and invoke injustice. And in both chapters, Joseph ends up in bondage due to his obedience. And in both chapters, Joseph is put in a pit. That pit, Hebrew word, it's the same word for both cistern and prison. It seems no matter how faithful Joseph serves, injustice always wins. But what's fascinating in this Joseph narrative is how his gaze You never see his gaze and his hope fixed upon his circumstances. He's not obsessed with the injustice, though it's real and will be dealt with. Rather, he is fixed on his God. Not his circumstances, but his God. Joseph knew that he had been done wrong twice now, but he also knew two things that he would cling to, choose to cling to, in the midst of this injustice. Number one, God made him a promise that this whole thing was going to end in his good. 
God made him a promise. Where did God do that? Through the dreams. And it wasn't just any God who made those promises. It was Yahweh. Yahweh, a name that appears eight times in the whole Joseph narrative, seven of those times in this chapter. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping name of God who does not forsake his children. So Joseph could entrust these injustices to a faithful God who in the providence of his own time will see this through, will vindicate him and will lead this towards good. He could trust in it now. But secondly, in the meantime, he could cling to the fact that his God had given him his presence that enabled him to endure the injustice. Did you notice in verse 21 and 23, not only did Joseph go into prison, who else went into prison with Joseph? God did. Even in solitary confinement, Joseph was never alone. He was constantly surrounded by the Lord's steadfast love, like an anchor that would hold him in this storm. What we learn from Joseph's story is that it's not the absence of injustice that brings you peace. It is the presence of God that brings you peace. It is not the absence of suffering in your life that brings you true peace. It is the presence of God in your suffering that brings you peace. And we've seen it all throughout the history of God's people. See it with Moses when he's in Egypt himself about to come out and God promises him in Exodus 33, my presence will go with you. We've seen it with the Israelites in the wilderness when they're in the middle of nowhere, not knowing where any resources are gonna come from. And in Deuteronomy 31, God says, the Lord your God goes with you. We've seen it with Joshua when he, in the conquest, when he goes into the land of Canaan in Joshua chapter one, the Lord your God will go wherever you go. We see it with David when he's fleeing from Saul for 13 years and he confesses in Psalm 16, it is in your presence, O Lord, that I find the fullness of my joy. And we'll see it with the Israelites when they go into captivity in Isaiah 43, when God says, I will be with you. And isn't it the same promise that you and I walk in this morning as well? who've put our faith in Jesus Christ, when Jesus himself said in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And what? Lo, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. It's called the Great Commission sandwich. Verse 18 is God's power. Verse 20 is God's presence. They go with us where? In verse 19, into his purpose. Whatever he may have for us as we go and we make disciples. The presence of God is not just his omnipresence that's with all people at all places at all times. This is his covenantal presence that is only for those who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ and are now adopted as children of God. He gives this to us And as we draw near to him in our times of need, we have the promise that he draws near to us. This is called what the Latin would say, living in quorum Deo. It is living in the face of God. 
It is living in the presence and relationship of God where day by day, circumstance by circumstance, Christians willingly place themselves under the authority and the honor of God in all things. And as a result, we enjoy the intimacy of his experience in our sufferings. How do we practice the presence of God? Let me just say this quickly as we end. There's a man by the name of Brother Lawrence. There's a book uh, named in his sake called Practicing the Presence of God. Brother Lawrence didn't write the book. It was attributed to him from his own works that he made, but he was a 17th century monk in France. He spent most of his life in a kitchen, cooking and cleaning. He was a humble monk. He was not an author, he wasn't a speaker, wasn't famous. He just was a humble monk who lived in the presence of God. And he kept a lot of journals with his principles in it that he just gleaned from his times with the Lord, from God's word. And after he died, somebody published it in his name. But he said this in his writings, much of living in the presence of God is done in the common business. Vacuuming, doing dishes, driving to work, folding clothes, making your bed. It is in those things that you can sense God's presence with you. He wrote, nor is it needful that any of us do great things, but rather we do little things greatly. One of the greatest examples was him making pancakes in the kitchen. Oftentimes he would flip the pancakes and while he's waiting for the other side to be flipped, he would simply kneel in front of the stove and he would pray and he would sing and he'd remember God's presence that was with him. And then he would get up and flip and then do the same thing as he waits. In doing so, he would say, it's not the one or two big events in this life that define your awareness of God's presence with you. Rather, his presence is found in a million little things. Living in the presence of God is all about relationship as you acknowledge his presence in all you do in every circumstance that you find yourself in. This is hard for us in 21st century Western culture, Dallas. A busy, busy people so consumed with our own constant self-interest. We forget to pray. We forget to abide in God's word. We forget to be in awe of God. We forget that God is not just infinite, he's personal. That he's not just after a rote routine, he's after a real relationship. And that's just me confessing from my own diary this weekend. At my daughter's 16th birthday today, we celebrated this weekend and I was running frantic all over the place. I felt like Martha on hyperspeed. And I wake up this morning and I'm like, man, I don't even know that I got to really enjoy her. I was doing so much for her that I really didn't get to enjoy her. And then I went, oh yeah, I'm preaching this text. God's got something for me because I do the same thing with him. God so longs for us to enjoy his presence. For Joseph, the presence of God was more precious to him than all the earthly comforts that he had to give up. This presence is what allowed him to serve faithfully in times of success, flee from immorality in times of temptation and to endure injustice in times of adversity. For any who are in this room who find yourself struggling today, find yourself in a hard place of suffering or injustice, or maybe you just found yourself succumbing to temptation and you've blown it. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, let me remind you today 
Like Joseph, we have a savior who is a firstborn son, chosen and sent, despised and rejected, treated unjustly, abandoned, placed in a hole, left for dead. And yet in the process, we learn, Hebrews 4.15 tells us that we do not have a high priest in him who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. That same savior would go to the cross for us, die for us, so that by our faith in him, through faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone, we can have our sins forgiven and made whole. And as a result, if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, you've been given the Holy Spirit, the presence of God within you. Lean into him this week. Trust him. He has not forsaken you. He has not left you. If you feel like you're alone, chances are it's you who's drifted but cling to him as he walks with you and gives you his presence in your circumstances as you await his providence over your circumstances. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we all need this word. I know I need it. Help us to remember God, your presence. Help us to see that if there is any victory that is to come in our successes and our failures and our temptations, our sufferings and adversity, it is only through being more further abiding in you, clinging to your presence, receiving the joy of relationship and the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit with us. Comfort us with that word today. God, I pray you do so for your glory and certainly for our good, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.